0: What's up guys? It is time to get focused on improving your health and I have the father of the functional medicine movement joining me today, Dr. Jeffrey Bland. In this episode, Dr. Bland goes hard on all things immune system, food timing, and the one superfood that's gonna change your life. If rejuvenating your immune system and figuring out a better way to personalize your diet to help you avoid disease and get to a healthier weight sounds like something you can use in your health routine, you're really going to enjoy this episode. And if you do, guys, the best way to support this podcast is by leaving a review so that we can get this information out to more people that can live a healthier life. I'm Tom Bilyeu, and welcome to Impact Theory.
1: The human on the planet Earth get 90% of its calories from 10 of the 20,000 edible plants. Now, that's an easy As it thing. should be,
0: or that's a problem?
1: That's a problem.
0: Dr. Jeffrey Bland, welcome to the show.
1: Wow, Tom, I can't tell you how much I appreciate being part of this uh, opportunity Dude, together.
0: As the father of functional medicine, I cannot be more excited to have you here or to ask the following question <laughs> What are the three superfoods that people should eat regularly if they want to have peak weight loss and avoid disease?
1: Yeah, so I, I think that that list, obviously, depending on the day of the week or the time of the year, might change. But for me right now, why
0: would it change so frequently? Well, because from, for you, from an education perspective or for the person from a seasonal perspective? Yeah,
1: so I believe in fresh. And, uh, you know, if we're eating strawberries in the winter, they're, they're not fresh unless we are living in a southern climate so if you ask where do you where are you going to get the most nutrient dense products there's some seasonality just like there is in frequency of eating time restricted feeding gives maybe a better outcome of eating than eating seven times a day you know so there are certain things about timing circadian rhythms that I think are important so when you ask me what foods it really in some way depend upon the season of the year but without a kind of a consideration of circadian potential um, I would say that the things that really kind of match the need of our present situation and we ask you know what are we suffering from as a as a society and then what foods then match up against those things mm. so we're having an immune stress we know that the human population globally is under immune stress and why is it under immune stress because of all the things that have been part of the 21st century living industrialization time compression uh xenobiotics over medicated i mean there's so many things we could go You have to
0: break those down xenobiotics
1: toxic waste products pollutants persistent uh, chemicals Uh, these would be foreign molecules okay so um you know if you there's an an abbreviation that's used in the literature called pops plps POPS stand for persistent organic pollutants these are xenobiotics. So it could be things like organophosphates, or it could be things like organochlorine compounds or Mm -hmm. uh, polyprominated biphenyls, and all these things that have built up by 50,000 new chemical agents coming into our environment and being bioconcentrated through the food chain over the last uh, 70 years since industrialization. So we know that we have that burden that previous uh, organisms living on the planet didn't have. So then how do we get rid of those? Um, we do so through, fortunately, a process that was involved in our bodies called detoxification. And it turns out that this is a superfamily of uh, genes uh, that control our detoxification process, both of internal chemicals and external <laughs> exposed chemicals. There are foods that contain specific types of uh, ingredients that actually speak to the genes that regulate the ability for our bodies to detoxify. That's an aha.
0: I want to talk about this idea of speaks to our genes. So one of the things, so one, I want people to understand that you really are considered the father of functional medicine and what that means. This is like 89, 90, if I remember right, you're thinking along these lines, you bring a bunch of people together and you're like, Hey, I think that the system of dealing with symptoms is probably not the right way to approach it. You guys come up with this idea of, it's really about the function. What's the function? Why is it breaking down and what do we do about it? So putting it in that context now you've got this idea of immunoregeneration so and we'll get into the whole personality of the immune system and all that which is fascinating and despite being as deep as i am in this i've never heard anybody speak to the immune system as having a personality before which i think is really powerful but now we're on this anchoring moment of phytochemicals so there are things that we can consume so by the way this just gave myself the chills here thinking about this And I always tell people uh, something that I took from biology, which is your phrase that food is information. We're gonna eat things that actually talk to our immune system is one of the ways, I'm sure it's Mm talking to a whole lot of things, but uh, in researching you, this idea of that phytochemicals, and if I misspeak anything chime in, but phytochemicals are basically the plant's immune system. So they're growing up in a harsh environment, but they can't run, they can't go to the doctor. And so they create these chemicals Talk to me about coevolution, though. How does it become
1: a communication with our immune system? Oh my word! There is so much uh, to unpack in what you just said. That was that was a brilliant summary, by the way.
0: I am literally just stealing all your words. No, there, no, no. thank you. Uh,
1: so, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that if I could by finishing kind of the thought around detoxification because it links back to your question about phytochemicals and coevolution. So. There are now discovered certain plants within the family of 20,000 edible plants, of which we get 90% of our calories from 10 plants. I wanna say that again. The human and the planet Earth get 90% of its calories from 10 of the 20,000 edible plants. Uh, that's an As it should
0: thing. be, or that's a problem?
1: That's a problem. That's taking the complexity of nature that can speak to our genes in very complex orchestrated ways and narrowing it down to just having the brass or percussion session playing the, the suite, So it's a whole different way of thinking about it. And we know we're losing food diversity at a rapid rate. That's another topic. Let me go back here so I don't get, get off topic and talk about what happens when you then so- select a food for whom the genes of that plant are that to produce a defense in their environment against their offenders. And depending on where they grow, where they have been genetically evolving, the soil condition, the atmospheric conditions, they will have different personalities because they have different genes. And there are some plants that will produce very high levels of these phytochemicals that have the capability of defending them by their ability to activate their immune system against the pests in that region. It could be mold, it could be rust, it could be bugs. And as a consequence, they, or bacteria, or fungi, mm-hmm. they're, they're capable of having that defense. And what we have found now, when I say we, I really should talk about phytochemists, I guess I'd consider myself part of that community, have found that some of these plant foods are capable when consumed by humans then of activating the genes in our body, particularly in the liver and in the intestinal tract that activate detoxification processes. So here is a cross communication of a plant that is defending itself against its foreign invaders Mm -hmm. in its environment that then when consumed, now what are those foods? Well they're principally in the cruciferous vegetable family. Broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, cabbage. These are foods that have these family of phytochemicals that have the name glucosinolates. Glucosinolates then when they're eaten in our diet are broken down by our digestive process to release a whole series of bioactive compounds, no 3 carbinol and uh, 2-hydroxyphenylbutane and all these other things, uh, phenyl isothiocyanate. Thi- thi-
0: How they do something that's simpler to explain than the names. Yes,
1: so these substances then activate the genes in our liver, our liver, the human liver, mm. to promote the ability to detoxify foreign endogenous and exogenous toxins so out
0: of the blood or out of the um, out of the tissues itself
1: so what happens when we eat obviously or breathe uh, ultimately those substances uh, get absorbed into our blood the blood then gets purified by going through the liver Mm. the liver is our deep one of our detoxifying principal detoxifying organisms and in those liver cells called the hepatocytes reside high levels of these specific enzymes that will detoxify and make uh, safe those chemicals that get released into our urine feces.
0: Okay. So the food that we eat, if we're eating the right foods, have this chemical messenger that tells our liver to upregulate these enzymes that are able to detoxify. Otherwise our liver wouldn't be able to keep up with the toxins. The toxins end up in our tissues.
1: That's exactly right.
0: Wow. Okay. So the idea of rejuvenating your immune system, I think is pretty important. So I want to go back to the very first thing that you said, uh, to anchor everybody, and we said is we're in this stressed environment. Our immune systems are stressed. Tell us how often our immune system cells are being <laughs> created, because I this was shocking to me. I didn't realize it was yeah. This I, I think rapid. that
1: it's very interesting. You know, I do a lot of education with uh, healthcare providers, uh, different uh, different genres, uh, and I'm always amazed at these individuals who have skilled in the art who have studied anatomy and physiology extensively to pass their board exams when you get down to some basic questions about the immune system, they don't seem to really have had the exposure to things like the immune system is producing every second about 80,000 new immune cells. That's so crazy. And, and so our body is constantly recycling our immune system. About every two to three months, our whole body's immune cell system turns over to be replaced by new cells. And then the question is, well, they are, are they good, as good, worse, or better than the cells they're replacing? And that to me is where the, the, the tip of the spear resides for some of our problems. And I could look at COVID-19 as an example. Why did some people get more problems with regard to the SARS-CoV-2 virus than others? Why did, when they got Before infected- Before you
0: answer that, tell me what it means to be good, bad, better, worse, like what, what is it?
1: Yeah, so our immune system is very complex. If we distill it down into a kind of soundbite, there are three arms of the immune system. There is this ancient part of it, which we call the innate immune system. That's our first line of defense. It's principally found in the mucosal tissues of our body, the the barriers that defend Mm. us from the outside world. So that would be the, in the gut. It's there, always on guard, ready to rock. That's right, the lungs, the skin, you have a lot of these um, innate immune cells. Uh, The second is the second line of defense, which is called the adaptive immune system. That's the one that most people are familiar with when you get immunized, that it builds antibodies that remember that exposure Mm. to be able to do battle the second time around. And then the third arm is the kind of crosstalk communicator between those two systems, which we call the T lymphocyte system, T helper cells, T regulatory cells, natural killer cells. These are all interwoven in this orchestra called our immune system. Now, it turns out that the personnel.
0: So I get the innate immune system, they're on guard. They're the sentries at the door. Yes. Just in case. Then you've got the people that go. Oh, okay, cool, that's a bad guy. I'm gonna run around, tell everybody, we trained to beat that bad guy, we, now we come into this system. But I don't know what the natural killer cells, the T cells, what do they do?
1: Yeah, so these are cells that have specific personalities to take a direction from what they're learning from the interrogation from the innate cells and the particular family of white blood cells that produce antibodies, the so-called B cells. And so they are the kind of crosstalk communicators. And so if they get the message that we're under alarm, we're under hostility, we're under siege, Mm. um, that under siege could either come from the outside world, like a virus or a bacteria or a toxin, or it could come from the inside world, that we actually have the buildup of toxins in our body that are activating the immune system. That gets into the whole uh, definition of autoimmunity. Are we really allergic to ourselves? I don't believe so. Mm -hmm. I think the term is wrong. I don't think we have autoimmunity. What we have is an immune reaction to our self being converted into non-self. Whoa. And then we ask, how do we have that happen? Uh
0: Uh-huh, that was gonna be my next (laughs) question. So, okay, so I know one way that we trigger autoimmunity, and tell me if this is what you mean by self into non-self. So I'm eating something, let's say gluten and it breaks down the epithelial lining of my gut, which for those that haven't heard of that, it's a single cell barrier basically, and the junctions break in some people quite rapidly. If you're eating the type of gluten found in the US, we can talk about Italy and stuff later, which maybe have better ways of handling it. But here in the US, you get that junction broken a lot. That then allows partially digested, or I suppose even not really digested uh, proteins to cross that Lining and they actually get into the bloodstream. So now you have true non self, where it's like, yo, there's a protein that's not supposed to be here. Now, the bad news becomes when you have something in the body that through biomimicry looks exactly the same. So you have gluten that comes in that looks like the hippocampus, if I remember right. And so it comes in, it's like, oh, word, we're going to build our. Not the adaptive the reactive immune system is that was called cool it identifies yep. that protein it says we've got it we know how to deal with that it then finds it in the hippocampus or whatever in the brain goes this is the same even though it's actually technically not and now it goes on attack because those proteins look identical and now you seem to have become allergic to yourself
1: beautifully stated wow That's a medical school lecture that should be published to all aspiring uh, physicians. That's a lot of
0: episodes of Health Theory. That's really good.
1: There's another part of the story, however, I want to add on to bolt onto that. And that is what happens if you have continually high blood sugar? So you're eating a diet that has high glycemic response, a high Mm -hmm. glycemic load diet. You talk a lot about that in your your work over the years and the people you've interviewed. Um, So you have then, we know, a, a case of building up what's called hemoglobin A1C And people that wear continuous glucose monitoring devices now are trying to keep their A1C low. And there's all sorts of ads on TV for the new drugs that will lower A1C. Well, what is A1C? It is a natural molecule in the body, native to us, called hemoglobin. You find it in your red blood cells. And it's that that molecule that holds on to iron and makes your blood red. So that hemoglobin, if it is exposed to a lot of sugar, then becomes chemically bound to the sugar. So that's glycosylated hemoglobin.
0: Because sugar's sticky.
1: That's right. When the glucose bumps into a protein, when your sugar in your blood is high, it doesn't just bump in and bounce off. It actually chemically reacts with your protein to make it a different protein. Now we think of that as being only with A1C, but no, it's, it's doing that to the major protein in your blood, which is albumin. Mm. And so if you look at glycosylated albumin, which we've done now for over 30 years, it's a more indicator of your risk to diabetes, to heart disease, to dementia than is A1C because now- What does albumin do? Albumin is your major blood protein and it's part of your immune system. The globular proteins in your blood, the albumin in your blood are those uh, transport proteins that take things like vitamins, fat soluble vitamins, Mm -hmm. they take nutrients, they take off waste products, it becomes a transport system for your body and if you were to glycosylate your albumin because you have high blood sugar, it's no longer the native albumin that you, your genes would want to make. It's a new foreigner. Hmm. Now you've just converted self to non-self. Interesting. Now, just so a second, as just sugar second molecule sticks. You're, gonna, you're gonna ask me a question. Let me, let me make sure I can follow up on this. Yeah. The question is, okay, if it becomes a non-self molecule, then what's an adept immune system gonna do? an adept immune system is gonna say, there's hey, a foreigner, I need mm. to go out and form a reaction to it using my uh, adaptive immune system. Now you're gonna ask me, does that mean that people that have blood sugar problems and diabetes often have autoimmune disease? Yes, they're comorbidities because they share common mechanisms related to uh, you becoming non-you. Mm. This is a huge different oppression because a lot of people, they feel they get autoimmune disease because it's in their genes. There is no strong evidence that any autoimmune disease is linked with a specific gene. They're linked with experiences that our genes are exposed to over the course of living.
0: So, okay. We've got sugar is bumping into things. It's chemically altering those things. Our immune system goes, this is no longer self. It mounts a defense. Now, going back to this idea of your immune system has a personality, but that personality is temporary. If you change the environment into which it is created, it will be different than it would otherwise be. And so when I was researching you, the thing that came to mind was, okay, my immune system cells are coming off at whatever, 8,000 per second. 80,000. thousand. Eighty. Jesus. <laughs> my brain's like, it can't be that much. Uh, 80,000 per second. If they're born into trauma, then just like a kid born into trauma, they're going to grow up with some dysfunction and we'll call that dysfunction overactive. Yeah. They're just like, they're going after everything because they have reason to because of what you just described. If they are born into an environment where it's, there's no high alert, everything's good, blood's clear, there's not sugar globbing onto everything and changing these things into foreign. I don't have a broken epithelial lining in my gut, so there aren't foreign proteins coming into my bloodstream. Everybody's chill. They're a kid that grew up in a nice, happy, healthy family. And I think we all know people that have been in both. And we understand the emotional reactivity of somebody who grew up in trauma versus somebody who has that emotional resilience when they grew up in uh, a more stable household. And so the emotional reaction of somebody that grew up with stability, love, all that, it's in proportion. They can encounter something hard, difficult, and they're able to stay pretty even keel. In fact, I will just tell everybody right now, if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, you have to be good at self-soothing. So you need that emotional resilience. Over here, you get somebody who's emotionally reactive. That analogy works so well for me in terms of understanding certainly COVID, which is where you were going. Mm -hmm. So talk to us then about a cytokine storm. Is that an immune system that came into the world in trauma and now you introduce another trauma and the reaction is just so big?
1: So are you familiar with Sev's work uh, on the ice babies in Quebec? Not by name. So Moshe Sev uh, and uh, Mark Meaney, his colleague at uh, the, what was really the Hans Selye Laboratory at McGill University, which was the father of stress, was Hans Selye. And so they're they're stress researchers, but from a whole different way than we often think about stress researchers. They've been looking at these uh, effects that we go through with our life experiences, post-traumatic stress syndrome, uh, the unexpected things that happen in our life that can be very traumatic. And does that produce a mark on ourselves, an epigenetic mark, not changing our genes, but changing the way that genes are expressing their function into our body. And this concept of epigenetic modulation is the currency of the 21st century because it is the science of hope, the science of hope. Right. Why is it the science of hope? Because there are many people who feel when they're chronically ill they've had bad experiences, they may have been subjected to horrible traumatic experiences that it's a one-way street. Once it's been Occurred. You can't erase it, it's real, it happened, and we're just gonna live with it. And a, a lot of that has to do even with uh, chronic uh, illness. If people are told, they go doctor shopping, and eventually they said, well, you know, it's just how it's gonna be. You have to learn to live with it. We'll give you some symptom-managing drugs and mm. hope for the best. But now we recognize, actually, that our genes that are regulating all this stuff that we call our phenotype, how we look, at and feel, are modifiable based upon how our genes are getting the signals as to how they're gonna express themselves. And that is controlled by epigenetic, above the gene events that put marks on our genes. Some are read here marks, others are don't read here. Mm. This section of the book is not to be read. And by the way, if we didn't have that in our genes, remember we all came from a single fertilized egg. Every of the hundred different cell types we have came from a single fertilized egg. How did that happen? It happened by this process of evolutionary embryology differentiation that occurred with putting these groups on the gene. So one cell becomes a nerve cell, another becomes a cardiac cell, and they start to differentiate. So you don't want the nerve cell reading the cardiac message. But the message is for every cell is in every cell of our body. So it has to be very differentiated. What we have learned, and this is the aha of the 21st century, is it yes? Most of this this uh, bookkeeping occurs in in, in uh, fetal development, obviously, before you're born, uh, and you don't want a lot of stuff happening after you're born that your liver cell could become your heart cell. Mm-hmm. But we have now learned that there are a small collection of genes um, after you are even into your adulthood that are still modifiable through epigenetic marking, and it turns out that these uh, these what are called metastable epialleles these parts of your uh, genes that are still capable of getting messages from your life to make changes in the editing of how your genes are expressed, those are in regions of the genome that regulate downstream effects like inflammation or cell replication or uh, cell repair or energy. Those principal fundamental processes that regulate how you are going to function as individual are still modifiable based on these epigenetic marks. Now. Let's go to the ice storms uh, this discussion of um, uh, Sev. So in uh, Canada, a number of years ago, about 10 years ago now, there was a horrible, horrible cold snap in Northern Canada that uh, was so bad of a freeze that power was out. And oh. and of course, women were getting pregnant during this period of time. And it was extraordinarily stressful. Uh, it, the temperatures plummeted you know, sub centigrade degrees. and and they lived in the dark and it was, it was pretty bad. So they got the, the question, I wonder during that period, was there any alteration the, in the imprinting of the genes it's as scary. a consequence of that, of that trauma? And lo and behold, they found out that that was true. Then they talked to a investigator, a psychiatrist actually at uh, Mount Sinai School of Medicine who had been studying second generation Holocaust uh, victim mm-hmm. descendants and finding, lo and behold, that the methylation epigenetic marks in, the, uh, in their genes one generation removed. Dude, this is so freaky. Yes, this is really freaky. Now, remember I said this is the science of hope. This doesn't sound hopeful the way it I'm did, describing not yet. it. Well, now I'm <laughs> going to close the, the loop here. The, the hopeful part is that what you can put on, you can take off. That's what we're learning. There are uh, these processes that mark your genes mm-hmm. with these events. But there are also processes that will take them off. And now we're going to go full circle where you and I started. One of the ways that that has been discovered, and I'm talking about just within the last few years, is through certain phytochemicals in your diet that modulate the ability to replace these uh, marks on the genes in such a way as you get off the bad parts of your book of life, the alarm parts, the inflammatory parts, and re give the ability to really express the good parts of your book of life. Hope, you know, joy, uh, love, the goodness that's in your genes. So we have that ability. This is the currency of 21st century. That's why it's a science of hope. This is a major transition in school. I can tell you through my medical school training, through my PhD training, which was now a number of decades ago, this was thought not to happen at all. In fact, if you would have brought this up as a student in my era, you would have been expurgated from school because it, no, no, the genes don't change their expression. Once you got them, that's all there. It's a one-way street. That is it was not like true. That when I was a kid. Yeah, it's yeah. not true.
0: Okay, so we have the ability to take it off the way the marks on the um, our genes, and you have talked about hey, nobody talks about the people talk about RDA for like protein, fat, sugar. Ah but they don't talk about it for the phytochemicals. Right. So, what phytochemicals should we be eating and where doth we find them? Oh, uh, yeah. And uh I'll I'll tease a punchline. I don't take supplements almost ever and in researching you I was like, yeah, I'm buying a supplement of that. So, what what are the things we should be eating to get our proper amount of phytochemicals that are going to positively impact the epigenetic expression of our genes?
1: Yeah, wow. So, this is such an incredible moment in our opportunity as a culture mm. to redefine how we want to see ourselves going forward, how we can become more self dependent on uh, achieving our health outcomes of desired function and uh, not depend upon crisis care to be the rescue for our ills. And what has been learned is uh, that certain foods that are high in Flavonoids. These, this is a family of phytochemicals, and this has drawn me in like full on uh, because I, <laughs> you know, there are no coincidences of life. I've come to recognize we're drawn into thinking things are coincidences because they happen together, but we're probably likely to have had them because of the things that we're dealing with and who we're hanging out with and the conversations we're having. So what we think is happenstance probably was more designed to to give that right that observation because of experiences that we're having. So for me. I had three experiences, it all happened within a couple of months of one another. One, I met this investigator at Van Bale University Medical School who was doing this extraordinary work on discovering a new way to manage blood, high blood pressure through the immune system. And I had never thought about uh, that the immune system had some relationship with uh, blood pressure. Mm. So I got discussing and looking at his papers and, and uh, it turned out that he had found a molecule, uh, it has the scientific name 2-hydroxylbenzylamine, called 2HOBA, that was capable of modulating the relationship between the immune system and the wall of our blood vessels to cause it to relax, which lowers blood pressure. Hmm. And so I thought, well, that's kind of cool. Where does that? Where does this? Two- the immune system is communicating with the walls of our blood vessels. Oh, absolutely, because the immune system is going in and out of the vascular epithelium all the time. It's it's prospecting. It's it's searching for. That's where atherosclerosis and immunity tie together. Heart disease and an inflamed immune system. Whoa. so. Let me just close by saying, I asked the question, then where is this 2-hova located? And as I read the paper carefully down in the fine print of the paper, he pointed out there's only one source in natural world of this in foods, and it's in something called Himalayan tartary buckwheat.
0: There it is. I knew this was going to be part of the punchline. And, I ordered some. I and, was like,
1: yeah, and, I got it. well, I got some for you. And, and I and I never heard of Himalayan tartary buckwheat. You know, no, like you, you, you know, all the time.
0: At first I was like, what are you saying? You are so used to saying it. You say it so fast. <laughs> Himalayan tartary. Yes. two it comes from the T A R T
1: whatever. Yeah, it comes from the Himalaya the district of China on the on the flanks of the Himalayan mountains. Okay. It's a 2,500- And it's not a
0: wheat, we should tell people that. It's not a my grain. wife would otherwise- It's not, not a grain, it's
1: a seed. Out. It's a fruit seed. It's been consumed for 2,500 years as a central food in harsh environments, mm. in the blue zones in the Himalayas. So I got this, this aha. Then the next part of the coincidence was, I asked my colleague that's worked with me now, she's very patient, she's been with me for over 25 years working, and so she kind of knows where my strange thoughts go. I said, are you familiar with uh, Himalayan tartary buckwheat at all? She said, no, I've never heard of it. I said, is there? Where is it grown in the United States? She said, well, Jeff, you're going off to this meeting in China, in Harbin, China. So why don't you let me think about this and I'll do some sleuthing. And when you come back, we can talk about it, which she did. So I went off to China and was had a, a, a guide host, MD, PhD, um, Chinese gentleman that was US trained. Um, and we went to Harbin and I had a chance to speak to 8,000 Chinese medical doctors in their annual health check about uh, health check center meeting about functional medicine. So I got on the train with him and here we go, you know, for a day trip to uh, Shanghai. And we get about halfway across China and we're going through these extraordinary agricultural areas and then a city would pop out with a million people out of nowhere. So I said to him, I, I said, um, just as a, a kind of a flyer, I wonder if you're familiar with something called Himalayan Tartary buckwheat. And as if time froze, like the like the train stopped, his eyes got very big, and he said, You gotta be kidding me. And I said, No. He says, We have been looking for someone in the United States for some years that had an interest in Himalayan Tartary buckwheat, because my group is the largest research group studying it and its its health benefits and physiology in China. Hmm. So then I got back and was a, telling um, my colleague that I had met this person and we were going to form a partnership. And she said, well, you know, I found the only person who grows Himalayan tartar in the United States is a former Cornell University ag research professor and his wife, who's a nurse, they have a hobby farm. He's retired and he's been growing this now and they, they, they mill it themselves and they have little roadside uh, stands up in upstate New York, in Angelica, New York. And uh, so you got to talk with him. Sam Beer was his name, I called him. We, we now formed a cooperative, Himalayan Tartary Organic uh, Cooperative doing regenerative agriculture. We have a number of farmers up there. Now we are farming for the first time ever in what, America.
0: What are the phytochemicals in it though, that make it so, yes. cause I know that they have whatever, a hundred times the amount of phytochemicals in yep. them that whatever the next closest thing has, but what exactly is it? Yeah. And what is the message that it's sending to our immune system?
1: Thank you. So it's a portfolio of about 50 different um, members of the flavonoid and the polyphenol family. So you have rutin, you have quercetin, you have luteolin, you have diazmin, you have asperidin. All in one plant. All in one plant. It's an orchestra. And, you know, that's one of the problems we have, I think, with nutritional supplementation in this country and the way we view it is we we often thinking about green pharmacy. Okay, we have a drug for such and such. Now, what is the nutrient that we find that mimics that drug? That's actually not the way nature works. Nature works symphonically. It has a whole different mechanism. It's network biology. They work together to, uh, hormetically is the term, hormesis, to modulate the functions that then regulate how our body functions. It's a different than blocking or inhibiting a specific product like uh, does a drug. Mm. It's really orchestrating the symphonic orchestration of how our body works. and so. We're looking at how it actually imprints the human immune system with epigenetic marks to regulate how the immune system functions.
0: Okay, so let me start putting some things together. So the immune system is communicated to by the immune system of plants. The harsher the environment the plant grows up in, the more that the immune system is... um, Developed. I'm not sure what the right way to think of that is, but they create more phytochemicals, phytonutrients. Maybe it's broader than um, one simple thing. It's the whole symphony. Um, But given that when the human immune system grows up in trauma, it becomes overreactive, why is it so awesome? Because that's part of what makes Himalayan, tartary, buckwheat so effective, is it grows up in like this heinous environment Uh, And it doesn't do cross-pollinization. It self-pollinates, which I didn't even know was a thing. It protects
1: its genes. Yeah, so
0: it's this sort of really pure thing that's grown up in this insanely difficult environment. Um, Why doesn't that become overreactive and then trigger our immune system?
1: Really, really important question. So if you think of our experience of life from really even the moment we were conceived up through whatever age we are, uh, we're collecting all these experiences because our immune system is everywhere in the body and has a, a really good memory. Mm. So it remembers all these events. It remembers the great days. It remembers the not so good days. It remembers the infections and the colds. It remembers the, the broken arm and the trauma that might have, all these events. Uh, now, some of those uh, are so um, strong in, in the way that they impact epigenetically our immune system that they lock the immune system into a state of feeling it's in, under constant siege that leads to this state of chronic inflammation because the immune system constantly feels like it's doing battle, even if it's not supposed to be doing battle. These cells, and they they have names like zombie cells. That's a pretty (laughs) descriptive term. Mm. They're cells that perpetuate the message of alarm. And by the way, um, you know, I I, I have come from an athletic background. I was involved with uh, university sports. I played basketball um, in university level. And so the, the construct of, of athletes who are constantly forcing to the edge, and and trauma is part of their training and part of their experience, they're collecting injuries. So how do we get them to rejuvenate their cells? It's not only the, the muscle cells and the joint and cartilage cells, it's the immune cells. And so what we often find is is people that are involved with athletic competition benefit from this process of immuno rejuvenation because all of us are collecting marks. Some people at a more Uh, accelerated level. If you have had SARS-CoV-2 infection and you're in post-COVID, you probably have marks that, that we call scars, right, on your immune system. Now, how do you get rid of them? You do so through this process because the body can rejuvenate its immune system by replacing new cells for the old ones, getting rid of the old ones by a process that's only recently been discovered. It won a Nobel Prize in medicine in 2014 called autophagy. Autophagy is a self-digestion process to get rid of debris and now give room to replace it with new cells. So the combination of rejuvenating through autophagy of your immune system plus getting rid of epigenetic marks gives the opportunity to roll back the age of your immune system and its function.
0: Why does that come from the world's most stressed out plant? Like I would have thought it would come from the world's most chill plant. The one that grew up in like the relaxed environment no worries that's the part i don't understand
1: okay so i i think we all know that doing nothing is not the way to be fit Mm -hmm. in fact the way you'd be most fit is you have a level of challenge that your body is going to be exposed to it could be a yes
0: i get where you're going but our own immune system is and and maybe this is what we have to distinguish. Okay, I don't want my immune system to encounter nothing because therefore it will be weak, That's right. but I obviously don't want it to encounter too much, or is it just, no, 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 you want it to be assailed by viruses, bacteria, fungi, all of it. You want it to just be bombarded, but you never want it to get confused between self and other.
1: Thank you, I, I think bombarded is probably too strong a word because we know everything can be taken to an extreme. Mm. Uh, the good stuff can become bad if, if right. overexposed. We want to rewild our children. We don't want them to be in a completely sterile environment, but we don't want to purposely expose them to life-threatening organisms either. That's that,
0: probably good advice. So
1: what we want to do is find the way to, and I use the word hormesis, which is a mm. small exposure to produce a large effect. So that's what these plants, uh, Himalayan tartar buckwheat, It does.
0: Does hormesis imply a small bad exposure, like uh, a pain, an injury? That's how I've always heard it referred to. It's a small bad that creates the big positive. It it doesn't
1: have to be bad. What it has to do is it has to uh, put a memory effect on that system that improves its ability to say, I'm resilient to that. I've seen that. I have the capacity. I have the headspace. If I see it again, I can manage it. And a balanced immune system, as we know, provides a capability. Most of us don't get sick all the time, even though every day we're probably exposed to infectious organisms that would make us Yeah, sick.
0: will you please tell people, hopefully they've heard me say this before, this is the most shocking thing I've ever heard of. Where does the vast majority of your immune system live?
1: It uh, lives in your gut. 60 to 70% is in yeah. communication with your gut microbiome. Why? And well, Think of what happens over the course of living. Over the course of living, an average person will eat somewhere between 10 and 20 pounds of foreign molecules called food. Mm-hmm. Unless you're a, a cannibal, you're not eating native molecules. You're eating food, which your digestive system then has to make a decision are their friend and foe. And so it's intimately communicating with that immune system that's clustered around your gut. It's not just cosmetically, you couldn't find a better place to put it. Mm. It's there to actually defuse bad messages before they get into your body to create injury.
0: Do we have a similar amount in our mouth? Yeah, we do. I was going to yeah. say that would make.
1: You know, a completely sterile mouth is not a good thing either, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you, it, there are friendly bacteria that live in our, in our mouth. I mean, um, oral pathology, oral uh, microbiology, the, the microbiome of the mouth is important when it's the proper one, not the streptococcus mutans and some of the uh, associated with a dirty mouth or plaque mm-hmm. or things that can create uh, inflammation. So, yeah, all the barrier surfaces, their skin, the same thing. Uh, the the general organs have their own specific kind of friendly microbiome that protects against uh, infection or... or.
0: Um. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high-quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Injury. Right. Man, that's so interesting. Okay, so uh, we need our immune system to get stressed. Maybe not the perfect word, but we need it to have to develop resilience. It has yeah. to have the hormetic effect. Uh, it doesn't have to be bad, but it needs to be exercised. Yep. Yeah but we do not want it to be overtaxed and we don't want it to exist in a chronically alerted state that there's always something bad going on and the way that we give it that there's always something bad going on signal is through basically a modern diet here's another thing you said that i'd never heard before because so i will vacillate between just not eating vegetables And because ah, I feel great, if I'm honest, I feel fantastic when I just eat meat. And when I was researching you, uh, and you were saying that you have a hypothesis, or maybe now you know it's true, but that some of the long-term problems that people face, heart disease, things like that, could be a result of not getting the phytonutrients or the phytochemicals that you need. I thought, ooh, that makes me want to not do my vegetable, it's just out of laziness, but my non vegetable eating uh, regimen. So, is that how you see that? That there are just, there are either our immune system or our cells or some, there's something going on with the way that we have evolved that needs the input from the phytonutrients.
1: Uh, you know, again, I, I want to be very cautious not to sound prescriptive but, that I have this enlightenment that everybody should be doing something because we know that we are varied in the way we respond to the world and we it's know important. that we're very adaptive organism. However, if I try to give uh, thoughts to the general public from that, which I've learned over 40 plus years of working in this field, I think it's clearly obvious that if you ate only animal products, you'd be getting no fiber. And we know that fiber really is now called prebiotics. Prebiotics meaning it's, it's food, if it's the right kind of fiber material, it's non-digestible carbohydrate that's eaten selectively by bacteria in our gut, our microbiome. So our microbiome diversity and, and health is really in part dependent upon certain types of prebiotics that only come through the fibers found in vegetable products. You don't find that in animal products. And as a consequence, if you have that healthy microbiome, it'll be producing things that are helpful for you, like butyrate and short chain fatty acids that then re-energize your gut immune system, the so-called colonocytes. And as a consequence, there is a benefit to you by having that vegetable-based, non-digestible carbohydrate called fiber that you would not get if you only ate animal products 100%. So that's number one. Number two, is by definition, uh, animal products have some, but not a lot of phytochemicals. Um, you know, if you eat wild meat, you will find in the in the meat you'll find some phytochemicals. If you do why the analysis, why in
0: wild meat?
1: Well, because they're eating a, a much more complex diet by their uh, the way that they're foraging off nature versus eating corn. Mm which you might get some phytochemicals coming from corn, zeaxanthin, but you're probably not gonna get a variety of phytochemicals in your meat.
0: I think it's worth a slight detour here for a second. It's one of those things that I should have put together, maybe subconsciously did put together from all the random factoids that I know about food and all that, but when I heard you say that industrial farming becomes a problem because nutrients are stored in the fat, and what you eat ends up in the fat. And so if you're eating a cow that's only ever eaten corn, that's very different than a cow that's out there grazing on a whole bunch of or venison or whatever. Um, Take us down that detour. Why is industrial farming potentially problematic?
1: Yeah, Uh, try to summarize a lot of stuff here quickly. Um, So our plants, which ultimately are eaten by animals to become Mm -hmm. our animal food, Um, grow in soil or in marine environments in the ocean and they depend upon then the integrity of the nutrients that are present for their growth. So let's let's go to terrestrial plants and talk about things that grow in the soil. The soil, as we know, has its own microbiome and that microbiome is as complex and interesting as our own microbiome in our gut. So if you are doing industrial farming using a lot of pesticides, herbicides, fertilizer, what you've done is to decondition the soil and you have changed the microbiome of the soil. When you change that microbiome of the soil, it's like changing the microbiome of our intestinal tract. Mm-hmm. It then becomes less able to communicate to the genes of the roots of the germinating seed of the plant. That mechanism has now been well discovered. I can go into it in great detail, but I'll <laughs> say that. Um, that there are chemicals produced by the mycorrhiza the soil fungi and bacteria in a healthy soil that communicate to the genes of the germinating plant to produce its own outcome right
0: stuff is dizzyingly complicated and so intertwined I so,
1: going, so let, let me make it simple for to hopefully give a, a an endpoint to your question so if we overly use the soil without re-nourishing it, just like we might overutilize our body by using too much antibiotics to kill bugs that kills our microbiome, it will then have an impact upstream of who eats those plants, right? Because those plants will not have the same things in them that a plant that the same gene type, that same seed, was grown in a rich, microbiome-rich soil. So we have seen, through the development of uh, industrialized agriculture, a depletion of our soils, not just mineral depletion, but the actual living texture of the complexity of that soil, just as we've seen the living texture of our own human microbiomes being compromised. So we're seeing diseases come as a consequence of those immunological imbalances. So if you were to ask me, is it important then to eat animals that had food that came from plants that were grown in soils with complex microbiome, I would say absolutely, yes. So that kind of answers a little bit of your question. Why does it depend upon where that comes from?
0: It doesn't answer just a little bit, but it is, so famous quote, as the island of my knowledge grows, so to the shore of my ignorance. (laughs) The more I learn about it, like, honestly, 20 years ago, I was so arrogant about diet and how people should eat. And, you know, look, I learned how to get lean and it's so simple and you just do this. And then my wife had massive dietary issues. I mean, it, it was it was a moment so acute that she remembers where she was standing and what happened. And the great irony was it was celebrating the success that we had had at Quest. We <laughs> were in living in this big fancy house and we're standing in the pool with the waterfall and we pop a bottle of champagne. She takes one sip and it changed the rest of her life. Wow. Now, of course, it was a threshold event where it had been building and building and building for Uh years and then maybe more and then just click and it was Nightmare City. And as that all happened, all of my thinking that I knew something just fell away. So I want to anchor us back around one of the coolest things that I've heard in like the sphere of diet and that's this idea that I can rejuvenate my immune system. Yeah. Okay. Super powerful. I want to marry that to the title of a book that you wrote, which is amazing disease delusion. And so getting people to understand that the very paradigm with which we look at our bodies, the way that we function is off. And so you've been very careful to explain that learning the things that we've learned over the, you know, hundreds of years we've been paying attention to stuff, discovering antibiotics and all is incredibly powerful. And the number of lives that it saved is insane. Yeah. But we've now, you know, you talk about it works for a while and then it becomes detrimental. We're now sort of coming down the other side. The efficiency we've learned in farming, amazing, but now it's becoming monocrops. Uh, antibiotics. Amazing, but now we're taking too many of them and we've developed this sense of there is a pill for every ill. So what are those sort of big pieces in your life that you do that are based on what you know about rejuvenating the immune system, the realities of soil and animals and fat storage and all that stuff?
1: So if you'd bear with me for about a minute or two. I'm down. This this is really kind of unearthed, and I, I'm going get, to get real here for a second. Um, so I'm coming up to my 77th birthday.
0: Congratulations.
1: Yeah, I think it is. You're I fucking think, sharp. I, I think it is. Um, and every day is a magic day for us, right? Mm. When, when we think forward. So how did I actually start down this process of being this explorer, this kind of... Um, Inquisitor, and it was from an experience in my life that was irreversible, of which it was a one-way street, both for my wife and I. And that was, as I just had come to my first real job as a professor in Tacoma, Washington, in 1970, start of Earth Day, that was the, that, that year, I was hired as a combination chemistry and environmental science professor. We moved into uh, our little condo, uh having just uh, relocated from Oregon where I finished my graduate work and uh four days into it we had our four-month infant son and our two-year-old son I wake up at six o'clock in the morning to find our infant son dead oh shit
0: whoa I did not know that
1: yeah uh he was an atopic baby uh there he had you know a lot more uh sensitivities than now that we've had three other sons uh that they didn't express that in their infancy. I, we still to this day don't fully know all the explanation, but I can tell you it set me on a life pursuit. Mm. Because from that moment uh, ever, there are certain marks in our life, right, that um, you can manage but you don't get rid of, and that's mm. one of them. So it set me on a path to say, if I can help prevent one set of parents or one child uh, from ever going through this, it was a life well served, and that uh, opened me to any any new idea. Um, as a professor, I was, you know, kind of channeled in my thinking, I was uh, a fast learner, I was kind of moving quickly, I was a full-tenured professor in six years, and, you know, so I was, I was a high achiever type of guy, and so that to, to do that, you've got to be very focused and very channeled, but suddenly I said to myself, I need to be alerting and open to every idea. I don't have to accept every idea, but I have to listen carefully, because there's wisdom out there that I might not uh, be able to understand if I'm just channeled in my own myopia. Uh, That took me then six million miles over the last years traveling all around the world to meet some of the most remarkable people and have conversations that epigenetically marked me. I'm a mosaic of all those experiences. I'm a universal seeker to answer exactly the question that you just raised. Mm. That has been my pursuit. So the answer to that question is I'm still in search. I don't think I have all the answers, but I think we have made significant progress over the last now 40 plus years in, in Producing an architecture that allows us to start understanding how to assemble this information to personalize it to the individual need, and that's been always my, since I worked with Linus Pauling, a two-time Nobel Prize winner at, at Stanford in my sabbatical years in the early 80s, I have been a champion for personalization because I think if you don't personalize, then you're not treating the uniqueness of each of our facets on the diamond of life with the kind of um, what I would call uh, celebration that it deserves. If I would have learned it maybe, uh, you know, now it's 47 years, no, more than that. It was 50 years ago, actually, that uh, our son, Kurt, passed away. If I would have known what I know today, well, who knows, I think I might have been more effective in uh, in modulating his immune system and, and preventing some of the things that we had to deal with. So I think these are all the parts of uh, gaining some mastery, uh, some wisdom. Certainly, it's a lifelong process you're never fully realized, but... It is a striving, as you do so well, to really open up new opportunities for discovery that can help other people in the process. So that's what led us into Himalayan Tartary Buckwheat. That's what led me into farm Big Bold Health. That's what led us into now owning a, a, a regenerative uh, sustainable oil plant in Dutch Harbor, Alaska and the Aleutian Islands. Uh, all of those things were part of this, this uh, uh, attempt to try to pull together things that people really could do uh, to rejuvenate and provide more resiliency of their immune system.
0: I love the idea of personalization. I think that's really important. That was something that we learned with Lisa as she was going through everything. It was just like things, they don't bother me, but they'll bother her. And they'll bother her really substantially. And things that make me put on fat don't make her put on fat. And so it's like this really weird thing of um, you really do have to personalize it. I heard you say that this is going to be the age where we go from uh, the age of the average to the age of the individual. Right. I thought that's really important. Uh you talked about the future of medicine being the ability to um look at the intersection of genetics and lifestyle. And then you you didn't say AI, but that was certainly what I took away from it, that we're gonna use AI effectively to really look at what is the interaction therein, uh, and being able to carry our own medical records with us, decipher all of that. Now Having said all of that, and we're going to go into this time where we're going to be able to do a lot more than we can do now, but what are like the the basics that you advise for people? Is it eat the rainbow? Is yeah. it don't eat sugar? Is it plants only? Yeah. No, What's not, the... not,
1: not plants only. I, I think eating close to the ground as much as possible and the ground. Does that mean? It means things that were alive. Got it. That didn't get through seven processes of... Uh, Of processing to be shelf stable for millennia Mm. Um, and and we're going now into an epic period as you probably know there's this uh, uh, this recent book about Silicon Valley now taking over the food supply system uh, through this new uh, food technology uh, doing fermentation technology to produce uh, mimics to to animal protein and uh, synthetic milk proteins that come from clone genes um, from unicellular organisms This is a real trend. You know, we see it with the Impossible Burgers and these meat substitutes. So the question is, are they the same? And the answer is they may taste the same. They may even look the same, they cook the same, but they're not the same. I mean, nature is complex. And the more we study foods that were grown in soils or uh, foods that were eaten by animals that uh, were grown in soils, the more we find out that there are things we didn't ever even know about that are part of this orchestration. So my feeling is, eat the rainbow, but it's not the synthetic rainbow. <laughs> it's it's uh, foods that have their natural colors because each of those colors is a different phytochemical that has a different principle. Now let me say something quickly about that because this loops back to your really, I think, insightful question about phytochemicals. Um, we used to think about phytochemicals as being antioxidants. And, and so it's just like uh, measuring the phytochemical content in your diet was to use an indication that's on food, some food labels called ORAC, O R I C. Which stands for oxygen-reducing capacity, uh, oxygen-reducing absorbent capacity, ORIC. And um, so it was said, well, the higher the Orac value, the better that food is, because it has more antioxidant potential. Well, I'm kind of an early-stage antioxidant researcher going back into the '70s, so I think I have some pedigree in this area, and I've been saying for more than 20 years, it's not about antioxidants alone that makes these plant foods valuable. So, you just can't substitute one ORAC for another ORAC and get the same thing because each of those chemicals that are in those individual plants, those phytochemicals, has unique signaling properties. I'm going back to your original concepts, that they send a signal to the genes that's, used, that's unique to them. So, a glucosinolate phytochemical coming from cruciferous vegetables is different than the uh, polyphenols of elagic acid coming from berries. They both are antioxidants but they have entirely different physiological mechanisms. And therefore, what are we really trying to accomplish? Are we trying to rejuvenate the immune system through the hormetic effects of multiple signals on goal so that we have an offense, not just a defense, that's producing a younger immune system? I I went on our own program, our immunorejuvenation program, and I I consider myself a pretty dedicated, healthy person, Uh, exercise, proper sleep, blah, blah, blah. So I went on our program and I started measuring my epigenetic uh, programming of my immune system. When I started off at the age of 75, I guess is when I started this. Um, my immune system age, based upon epigenetic profiling uh, using AI determination of the methylation patterns of my immune cells, was, uh, I, was I was 75 in, in birthdays, but I was uh, 67 in my immune age. So he we said, "Well, that's that's pretty good. I'm." I'm, I'm My immune system is younger than my age and birthdays. But then I really dedicated myself to our program. And I really said, could I really uh, have an effect that would be beyond that of what I've seen? And lo and behold, another three months in retesting, I was 53. Whoa. Yeah, I, I dropped it another seven years. What'd you do? I went on to our immunorejuvenation Program, exactly the, what you and I are talking about. I, I religiously dedicated myself to stay on the program, exercise, sleep, stress management, polyphenols, omega-3 fatty acids, prebiotics, probiotics. The whole nature of what we're trying to do in Big Bold Health was- Through
0: whole food or yeah, supplementation, a mix whole, of both. Whole
1: food with some supplementation because I can't, in the way I live my life, always every meal mm. prepare it from the way that I would want it to be prepared. So, you know, we, we try to provide some convenience in the way that it can be done, but it starts obviously with food.
0: Can I predict what your diet was? Sure. Okay, yeah. so, and I, I do wanna know if I get it wrong, but I wanna see if I've understood everything you've been saying. So, uh, there's gonna be a lot of fatty fish, grass-fed. Yep. Um, sustainable farming, if possible, so that the soil is accounted for in the whole equation. Yep. Uh, you're going to eat the rainbow, but you're going to consider seasonality as well. So it's, uh, is it fresh? You mentioned that in the beginning. So something that you wouldn't have to get frozen, although I happen to know the punchline about some of the way you guys prepare fish and you do freeze it to yep. preserve the oil. So that's probably not a hard and fast rule, but the freshness is what you're going for there.
1: And, and I do say that because we do a lot of boating up north that we don't have access always to fresh fruit and vegetables, mm. we do do frozen in, in our summer trips. So okay. yes.
0: But would you still try to time the frozen fruit to what would have been yeah, seasonal? Exactly. Makes sense? Do you at all account for being Northern European in descent?
1: Yes. Uh, I think the genomic uh, template upon which we lay our lifestyles is very important to know. When people ask me, should I get my genes tested? I say, yes, this is your book of life.
0: Will you tell the story about your dad? I thought that was really eye-opening.
1: Oh, wow. That, that's amazing that you're familiar with that story. Thank you. So. Uh, I, I've had I had the great privilege of going through every phase uh, with my father, and including him coming out of retirement when we started our first company, because he said you know nothing about business, which was true. And so he and I worked together for a number of years, with he kind of being the financial manager and blah blah blah. Um, eventually, then he did retire, and we he and my mother went out for his retirement tour around the United States, and and. Uh, uh, I noticed when he came back after a couple of years of, of uh, being in this retirement period that he didn't seem quite as sharp mm. and uh, and so I started talking with him and he always probably he's a life of the mind he was uh, he was a scholar was a, a prodigious reader and I, and he said, you know I, I think I'm starting to lose a little of my edge so we uh, we followed him very closely then he and my mother decided they would move down to uh, to Northern California from Washington State, so now I wasn't seeing him as frequently as when they, we lived in the same mm-hmm. area, and I would periodically stop in there, and uh, and then he started to really slip off the edge, and he started getting Parkinson's and early oh. stage dementia, and, and it was it was really his, his function was deteriorating uh, rapidly, and and my mother who was a big devotee of health and actually the one who probably got me nutrition to begin with, my sister and I both. Um, she said, you know, Jeff, uh, I don't know exactly what to do. I'm, I'm really trying to do the best I can, uh, but, but I really see your, your dad slipping away. And at this point, he had been moved into another bedroom because he wasn't sleeping well through the night. And so, you know, he, then my mother would come in and get him dressed in the morning. And so his sphere his of influence was very compressed. So um, she then said, uh, you got to come down and, and, and visit and see what's going on. So when I did, uh, it was it was pretty dramatic how how quickly he had slipped. So I, I said, well, is he seeing a doctor in, the, in in the local area? Oh yes, it's an MD PhD in the local area. He's a hematologist um, and internist. And I said, oh okay, well that's that's good. Um, so does he? Uh, what kind of analysis is he doing? And he oh, yeah, kind of a good analysis, routine analysis. I said, well, could I see the medical records? I'm sure you could get them from him. So I, I communicated with him and. His analysis was usual and customary, it was good, but it was nothing that we would do if we were doing a more detailed, functional analysis. So I recognized that there was one thing that he had not done that I thought, being a hematologist, I could easily get him to do. And that is, I asked him, do you know what my father's vitamin B12 level is? And he said, well, no, he doesn't have any signs of pernicious anemia. And I said, no, 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 I'm not asking about pernicious anemia, I'm not his functional status of vitamin B12. And he said, well, no, I, I I don't think so, but let me take a look. So he did a, a serum vitamin B12 level, and he, he came back, and he, he was feeling proud of himself. He said, see, it's in the normal range. Mm. And I said, well, but that's actually not what I really wanted to know, and I think uh, you as a hematologist might want to go to the next level, the function of the B12, not just it's in its blood, but how it's functioning. He says, well, what do you recommend? I said, you know, this, this test of measuring in his urine homocysteine and methylmalonic acid, or in his in his serum, those two chemicals, because those are byproducts from the body's ability to use mm-hmm. vitamin B12 and folic acid. Not just how much is in the body, but how is right. it functioning. And so he said, well, I'm not aware that that uh, test is, uh, is used traditionally. And, and I'm thinking, well, gee, what do you see, a PhD and MD and, but okay. He says, so do you have any papers on that? You never have asked Jeff Bland for papers. <laughs> so I, uh, this back in the days of faxes, so I faxed him so many papers that it burned out his fax machine, literally. His nurse That's called me the next day and said there were papers all over the office floor. And so uh, he then called me and said, oh, there's a lot of literature on this, isn't there? And I said, yes, there is. And, and he says, okay, well, maybe uh, I had a measure those. And I said, yeah. And he said, but I'm not sure Medicare covers that. And I said, look, I don't care if Medicare covers it. Right. I, you know, we'll pay for it, cash. Just get the, And here's the lab that can have it done. So we got it all done, and lo and behold, the data came back and it was very high in those metabolites, showing he had a functional vitamin B12 and folate deficiency. So then he said, well now what do I do about that? Now remember, I want to say, he was a hematologist, um, and I, I said, well, I think you would treat this like you would consider treating pernicious anemia. He's like pre-pernicious anemia, to give it some terminology. Right. And so I would give IM, intramuscular injections, of B12 daily. And I would give a high oral dose of 5-methyltetrahydrofolate, the absorbable form of folic acid. So that happened. I waited then up in Washington State with bated breath, as them down in California, what was going to happen. And no news for several days. And then one morning, this, this was an epiphanal experience in my life, actually. One morning, my mother calls, and she's hysterical. And I think things have really gone south. I am the worst then suddenly presents itself. I think, oh my word. And um, I get her calmed down because she wasn't being coherent. And 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 I said, so is dad really in trouble? And she says, oh no, 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 that's not why I'm telling you. What I'm trying to tell you is for the first time in three years, he came into my bedroom, fully dressed, saying, let's go on a picnic.
0: Wow, she gave me the chills.
1: And for the next six years, my father went back to his computer, which was his favorite thing. He, he liked programming and doing simple things on his computer and he was functional. Wow! And if there was ever any need for me to see the validity of this construct that we've been trying to teach other doctors about over the last 40 years, that was like, uh, it made it all
0: real. What? How'd you know that it was gonna be related to B12?
1: Well, because there's a big uh, literature about functional B12 deficiency and encephalopathy and, and its combination with folic acid and, you know, and seen then by these pathways in, in neurochemistry that are so dependent upon those nutrients for their metabolic function, producing energy, mitochondrial activity, and so forth. So I thought, I thought he had a mitochondriopathy that could have been B12 and folate um, dependent and that he probably was a malabsorber. Uh, of B12, which, you know, with the lowered hydrochloric acid secretion with age and atrophic gastritis type B that often happens in older age. And so you don't absorb as well your B12. You don't have as much intrinsic factor being produced by your stomach. So uh, this is, these are things that average docs are not trained in. Uh, they might learn it esoterically, but they don't have clinical experience and so they don't think about it often when it comes
0: to... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news, Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory.
1: Comes to clinical management. Mm.
0: Okay, so as you come at things from a functional perspective, what's going wrong? What is it that they either have too much of or don't have enough of that's the underlying cause of this? If somebody's struggling with Something like dementia, I mean, let's pull a hard one. Obviously, as of right now, it feels like uh, people knowledgeable in this space would say it's probably preventable, but if somebody's already struggling with it, is there, are we just in protocol mode of trying to slow the decline, or is there something that we can do that is the science of hope? To use your earlier phrase.
1: Yes, the science of hope. Absolutely. If there's anything I want to imprint in this discussion with you to leave as a takeaway is we have to be very mindful the science of hope is on our threshold. And, you know, I have a good friend and colleague, I, I'm sure you are aware of know him, and that's Dr. Dale Bredneson, mm-hmm. who is a neurologist, neuroscientist um, at UCLA and in has been looking at the reversibility of early stage Alzheimer's through a multifocal approach using personalized lifestyle medicine intervention, all the things that we've been talking about. And so he started implementing these constructs that we've been talking about in functional medicine that really are part of this whole big, bold health construct that we can take charge and we can employ the science of hope in a real way to turn back things because they're rejuvenatable. They can be rejuvenated. And he just published another on a series of papers, a, a pilot trial, I think, of uh, 30 patients who had different degrees of early stage Alzheimer with cognitive deficits and hippocampal shrinkage and so forth, showing outcomes after a period of uh, less than a, a year of improved function with all the standard measuring devices that uh, are used to assess Alzheimer's disease, plus increased volume of their hippocampus in their brain, increased oh. volume. So these constructs that, uh, We are hopeless in our thoughts about Alzheimer's, that billions of dollars have been spent on drugs to try to treat it unsuccessfully, that we have no successful treatments today. The successful treatments are in the wisdom of nature. Mm. It's in the wisdom that we need to go back and relearn, that a lot of people uh, have lost because they're looking for the synthetic single silver bullet that's going to treat a multifactorial condition. Alzheimer's is not a disease. It's a complex outcome from the marriage of our genes with our environment with our lifestyle and the latter's the latter of those environment and lifestyle are modifiable mm. that's where we should be spending time and energy we're not spending time and energy in government support for research in that area we have to do it on our own we have to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps we have to create our own science of hope to demonstrate that the solutions exist they just need to be proven
0: yeah it's interesting so what is it exactly that the modern lifestyle is breaking is it that is it i know it's both but are we suffering more from intaking something that we shouldn't which is my hypothesis or is it that we are not eating something that we need to oh like my. if you could only pull one of those levers and i totally understand it, it's obviously both but just to get a sense of like which is attributing to more of what we're going through if you, so i'm
1: going to use the name dr sydney baker and uh, he has what he calls the TAC rules.
0: The TAC rules? TAC rules,
1: T-A-C-K-S, the TAC rules. He says um, there are two things that we know. If you sit on two TACs and you pull one out, you won't get 50% reduction of pain. The second part of the tax rules is that the future of healthcare is all built on what you've just said, on getting rid of that which you don't need and adding back that which you do. Mm. And that is the wisdom that really incorporates itself in personalization because what you take away and you add back is different slightly from person to person. There are these guidance principles we're talking about, Mm. but it really is in the face of personalization that the outcome can be more successful. And I often say nutrition is for real people. Statistical humans are a little interest. Let me say it again, that, that's a quote from Dr. Roger Williams, the father of biochemical individuality. I quoted, I wrote it down and have memorized it and said it millions of times since 1974 when I first didn't say it. Nutrition is, or let's call it functional medicine, is for real people. Statistical humans are of little interest. Mm. But medicine that we use today is, are built around statistical humans. You get a diagnosis and now that is who you are. If it's diabetes, you suddenly are the diabetic patient but there are as many forms of diabetes as there are as many forms of disease.
0: Yeah, see, that's interesting. So I heard you say that, and you pushed it farther and said, as you begin to like peel away all these different things, you realize that this is just a a cluster of symptoms that people have sort of given a name to, could be coming from different things and different people, and so do you really have this monolithic thing? Is there a monolithic thing that seems so true that there's a monolithic thing. Why do you think that's the wrong model?
1: Well, I don't want to throw away entirely this, this monolithic concept, like monogenetic diseases, like mm. phenylketonuria, Tay-Sachs, Wilson's, uh, sickle cell anemia. We, we know that there are many, many genetically linked diseases what are called monogenetically linked to a single gene. But what people don't have, often understand is that those, let's use Down syndrome as an example, uh, trisomy 21. Um, as we know from experience, if, if you look at a whole variety of uh, children that have Down syndrome, the severity of that condition with the same genetic um, diagnosis can be very, very uh, different. Some people are high functioning uh, trisomy21 downs and, and they virtually have a, a normal life and others are really significantly adverse affected and maybe they never even get to adulthood as a consequence of the wow. same genetic characteristics. So, It's not that genes are unimportant. It's not that there are not uh, some kind of monolithic indicators, but even those that are most profound are modifiable into the phenotype, into how that person looks and feels based upon the experience in which those genes were expressing themselves. Let me give another example. Phenylketonuria. That's a a really interesting one because it's the most common birth defect that uh, is genetically linked. What is it? Phenylketonuria, PKU
0: or what is it actually?
1: It's a consequence of a genetic abnormality of a single enzyme, a gene that controls a single enzyme called phenylalanine hydroxylase. It converts the amino acid phenylalanine into the amino acid tyrosine. Mm. And so if you have a defect in that gene, that your body can't convert that amino acid in your food, phenylalanine effectively into tyrosine. So now you have an amino acid disturbance. You build up high levels of phenylalanine, you have too little tyrosine, which produces neurotoxicity.
0: And what does that manifest as, like, phenotypically? Are you
1: retardation? Got retardation. Got these, these children, if they're untreated, generally don't get to adulthood. Mm. But we learned, when I say we, that's not me. Right. Before me, it was learned that if you could, for a reasonably short period of time in that child's life who had this genetic characteristic, if you could retard the intake in their diet of that amino acid of phenylalanine by using a prescribed diet that was containing proteins that were devoid or, or limited in phenylalanine, mm. you could prevent that retardation. Whoa. And they could grow out of, to an the extent, their PKU. Wow. Now what I'm saying, and I I want to emphasize it because people do not understand this, that genetics definitely are an important primer. Mm. But they are not actually the determinant that ultimately determines how we function. It's all the other things that Modulate the orchestration of our genes. We've talked about epigenetics and all these things that have gone back to the beginning of our conversation. So, even in the most dramatic cases of monogenetic diseases, we see variance in their expression based upon other variables that are generally tied to the lifestyle environment and and things that that uh, that individual has been exposed to, even in utero. So, that takes us even back to pre pregnancy planning and how the mother and father were, uh, the biological mother and father were were healthy with their egg and sperm, and how that combined together. We now recognize these epigenetic marks start even preconceptually. So it puts a lot of opportunity, but also responsibility on us to make informed, intelligent decisions.
0: Yeah, speaking of, so I remember the first time that I heard somebody pop off that autism was tied to diet. I was like, get out of here. That seemed ridiculous. Is it ridiculous? Or is there actually a possible connection?
1: Well, I, I think, again, we have to go upstream of that discussion because it, in functional medicine, we always try to say, okay, what's the origin of that question? Where did it come from? And I think it came from what is it that modulates then neuronal function in uh, in developing children? Is it a combination of exposures to maybe xenobiotics? We'll come back to these uh, foreign molecules uh, that we now, we have a lot of toxins floating around in the universe. Could that play a role? Could it play a role that the microbiome was disturbed and produced then untoward effects that uh, we now are starting to see uh, some suggestion that uh, the microbiome plays a role in autism, the, the gut immune system. Wow. So I, I would not wanna say autism is caused by this, yeah, yeah. but I would wanna say there are many variables that play roles. Autism didn't just suddenly come about because our genes changed. You know, I think it's very important. If you look at the hockey stick of increasing uh, frequency of autism in the westernized population, it was coincident with changes that were occurring in how we lived, how we ate, how we moved, how we, how environment in which we lived. And, uh, you know, some people say, well, it's because of vaccination. Uh, You know, that's probably a small uh, player in the bigger picture of things that impact the developing nervous system. And so I think all these things go together as it relates to, why it is it's not just better diagnosis we are actually seeing frequency increase because the genes are being exposed to a different set of collection in the environment
0: yeah man this is like the the number of things that we have changed in a modern lifestyle compared to how we evolved is is crazy now i'm a city bather so for me i know some people really enjoy forest bathing and being out in nature and it's not that i don't like that But the thing that really lights my candle is going into, like, Tokyo. It's my favorite place on planet Earth. It's so incredible. It's just this overwhelming cityscape that makes me feel alive and super creative wonderful. But it's so abnormal in terms of the way that we came up that I do wonder how much of our modern lifestyle is causing problems. So I'll roll through the things that I think whenever somebody asks me like, hey, I wanna be set up for success, I wanna be my best, my sharpest, my whatever, I'm like, you, you think I'm gonna tell you what book to read, but I'm actually gonna start way back over here. And so my first thing is sleep. Sleep for me is like the master regulator. If you're not getting sleep, your diet can be amazing. If you're not sleeping, you're gonna to be toast. So you've gotta get sleep and I naturally tend to sleep about six hours, but I would like to sleep more if I'm completely honest. I don't use an alarm, I go to bed at nine, I try to like be in line with circadian rhythms, get sunlight my eyes the whole night. But whether it's stress, which is my one vice, or natural, I don't know, but I get about six. But I tell people sleep as much as your body will let you. Uh, so sleep would be the first one. Exercise is gonna be huge. I don't think a lot about cardio, but I do think a lot about being stressed wrong, putting yourself under weight, making sure that you get your heart rate up, working out at a cardio pace. Lifting weights, maybe even a better way. Okay, so you've sleep, exercise. Then meditation, not necessarily in that order because food is probably more important, but meditation so that you're able to calm your nervous system. I find most people are not able to do that. And then diet because a lot of your mental problems could be tied to your diet. The diet is basically what we've been talking about here. That's sort of like the big cluster. Now we can get into mindset stuff, but I'll set that aside for now. That's sort of the big bundle of things that I worry about with people. Am I missing any big zones?
1: Let me say that you have just stepped off, I believe, exactly where we should be in this part of our conversation. Right. Exactly. Because everything you've just described, everything, is related to your immune system function. Interesting. So remember your brain has an immune system, mm. the microglia. Tell me and more. And when a brain immune system is alarmed, you can't sleep. Mm. So you say get six hours sleep minimum, and I would say is it restful sleep and how do you get to restful sleep? Because you, if you have an inflamed brain mm. because your immune system is, is overactive, you're not sleeping well, mm. even if you're in bed for six hours. You know, I, I learned a lot from, from these biometrics that we're starting to measure our 24-7, 365 function. And it's it's a revolutionary thing for me. I've been a biohacker for 30 years. And to to look at my fitness score or my readiness score... Uh, As the,
0: given to you by
1: Oura Ring? Yeah, by the Aura by the Ring, which, you know, I've had like 30 different wearables over the years, but, but this one is very convenient. I like the way that it, it assembles the information. Um, and, and by the way, I have no financial relationship mm-hmm. with or as well. Uh, but the, the, what I've learned from my own personal experience, and it's been replicated, now I've given Aura rings to my family, and so we kind of all have a chance to, to have discussions, um, is when my readiness score, which generally is, is in the mid to high 80s or low 90s, goes below that, it's something that I did or didn't do that related to my immune system function. Mm-hmm. I see it in my respiration rate, my body temperature, I, my pulse rate, I see it in my heart rate variability, I see it in my sleep cycling, it, it, and, and therefore the aggregate is my readiness score when I look up in the morning, it's like, oh geez, now it's the, like in the low 70s, what happened? Mm-hmm. But then I can directly see what's gone on, either I overtrained, or I didn't uh, get activity, or I ate something I knew better than eating, or I had too much alcohol because we were celebrating something and I decided to have mm-hmm. uh, one more than I should have or I uh, was eating a a food that I would normally not have eaten because I knew it was gonna set up some kind of a a response, and yes, it told me the next day, because my immune system is the ultimate arbiter. There are only three places in our body that are sampling your outside world 24-7, 365. Your nervous system, your mucosal surfaces, and your immune system. Mm -hmm. And your immune system is interrelated and intercommunicating with your nervous system and your mucosal surfaces all the time. It's a super system. Therefore, what most rapidly changes upon you stepping out of your program is your immune system function. It immediately tells you. Mm -hmm. So what I try to get people to understand is these are surrogate markers for immune function. When you do the right things, your immune system has been rejuvenated. You're in autophagy, you are epigenetically marking the brilliant genes of uh, benefit, and you're not turning on your alarm genes. That's, and it takes maybe two or three months to get there because your immune system has to repattern itself over the course of several months to really regenerate its function. That's why Big Bold Health is focused on the immune system. It's the gateway into all of these things. It's an interrogation that gives you immediate feedback.
0: What's your thinking on fasting? I have a follow-up question, but we'll start there.
1: Well, I think fasting in and of itself, that would be like juice fasting or water fasting.
0: Water only is what I mean.
1: Yeah, I think you have to be very cautious to know what you're doing. Uh, you know, I, I've been in in the Nordic countries. I've done fasting before in places where it's been historically, fasting clinics. Mm. Um, and and some people just do unbelievably well. I've, I've been in clinics where people have uh, full arthritis. And by the time they're through with uh, a three-week uh regimented, controlled fast, their symptoms of arthritis are completely gone. Wow. So uh, there, there, is, there is a place for it, but it's, you've got to be very cautious because metabolism can be brittle in some people. And you're, you're, you're stressing resilience. Mm. And, and some people are not resilient enough to be able to manage that. So that's what
0: happens to their metabolism if they fast and their metabolism is brittle?
1: Well, you can get into cardiovascular problems because of electrolyte disturbances. You can get into neurological problems related to kind of psychotic episodes in the extreme case. And we've seen that before. Um, I mean, there are people with the uh, kind of diversity of different types Mm. that are not well adapted at all to the... um, Because it is stressful to the body. You're changing metabolism remarkably rapidly. Mm. And if you don't have the capacity and that headspace to accommodate that, it can produce uh, problems. That's why I'm much more in time frequency and time restricted eating. So when keep can, the window brief. Fourteen hours minimum.
0: Okay. And then what's sort of your maximum where you don't need to sweat it?
1: Well again that depends a lot on the person and their, mm. their particular disposition. But I would say that if you have in, anywhere between a six to eight hour window of eating in a day. And so that means the rest of the day you're not eating. Right. Then that you're going to be in that in that zone where most people can tolerate it safely and it can be integrating in their life and they can comply because it's no good if you can't stay with it.
0: Yeah. yeah, intermittent fasting for me has been a game changer. And once I got, it took me a while to get metabolically flexible. And the first time that I went full blown ketogenic, I did a four to one fat to combine carbohydrate protein that was miserable because I didn't know how to manage my electrolytes. Not fun, but once I was on the other side, so I'd struggled with joint pain for 15 years and I was icing my wrists every night. I had what looked like permanent burn marks on the back of my wrists, because I was just icing them so much, and didn't think there was anything I could do about it, to be honest. I just thought, well, genetics, hey, it's just my lot in life, not realizing it was, of course, exactly what I was eating. And when I switched it up, the joint pain went away, and I was like, oh my God, it was so crazy. It was the closest thing to taking a drug I'd ever experienced in my life. And through you, that- You
1: did take a drug. You took the Science of Hope drug. Yeah. You repatterned your immune system. And you know, a lot of people marginalize what we talk about saying, well, that's cute or that's interesting, but that's not as powerful as mm-hmm. doing real medicine. I'm saying this is real medicine. Oh yeah. There is no question about it. When you turn on the right genes and turn off the the, the, the genes that are giving you problems, that's real medicine. And that's what we do. That is yeah. what the, that's the big bold health concept. We're not like any more self-conscious about this. I'm not shrinking around saying, oh, I hope I don't get called out and someone criticizes me no this stuff works
0: yeah no i mean it it food changed my life drugs have not changed my life because i try never to take drugs but food who like that really that and that was my first experience where i was like this is so profound so i previous to that i'd used it to lose weight but that always felt like really really hard once i got metabolically flexible and I could go let's say 20 there were times where I'd go 24 hours without food not like oh I didn't even notice but like I could go 20 hours without really even thinking about yeah. it the last four is like to hit a goal sure and so now I've been intermittent fasting and I do my average out so I tracked every day for I must have it every day for more than a year and it averaged out to about 17 and a half hours of fasting every day. And then my diet is also very clean, meaning that it's primarily whole foods, like almost exclusively whole food. Um, I don't eat enough variety, that is for sure. Uh, That would be, if I were gonna say I have two vices, I'm very comfortable in stress, so I know that I'm shortening my life, uh, and then I eat very simplistically. So I'll eat the same things over and over and over and over and
1: over and over. And over. Well, no, just to say I want, I want to challenge that. Yeah, please. You know, you know stress is not necessarily a pathology. Distress may, distress may be a pathology. Stress is energizing. Stress is a virtue. Stress is important.
0: Speaking uh, my language here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, if you look at uh, individuals that are put in, in self-confinement con- uh, mm. in which they've been sensory-deprived, and they have virtually no yeah, that's stress. Crazy. Yeah. They, they
0: break mentally. Yes.
1: They get sick very mm. quickly, r- rapidly. So this concept that stress is is something we ought to avoid that's that's ridiculous. We ought to be seeking out positive stress. Mm. We ought to be seeking out. It's 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 a powerful energizing. It's when it tips over on the other side and it becomes distress on the curve because we're not properly supporting it. And in fact. Again, we come back to, will stress have anything to do with your immune system or does your immune system have anything to do with stress? Of course, they're intimately connected because the glucocorticoids that are produced by your adrenal glands. Cortisol, um, uh, for one, uh, is an immune active compound. So when your immune system is disturbed, you have an immune uh, connection to your, your blood pressure and to your stress modulating systems, the so-called HPAT axis, hypothalamus, pituitary, adrenal, thyroid axis, So all these are part of this web. This is why we think functionally about where's the gateway of entry. The gateway of entry is your function of your immune system. Because if you get that right, you're using stress as a power energizer, not as a distress.
0: Yeah, I would say 90% of the time that's true. There are definitely times where it's like, oops, like we have now officially spilled into distress. But yeah, that's a great point because I really do... I am a bit of a, an apologist for how much I work and my stress. But to be honest, I do it because I love it. Okay. And it makes me feel alive and it's exciting and I love pushing myself. All right. Speaking of pushing oneself, where can people follow you?
1: Well, I think uh, bigwoolhealth.com or jeffreybland.com, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y, Bland, B-L-A-N-D.com. Either one of those can, we got hundreds of videos, right? You know, different kinds of plans, programs, rejuvenation, whatever they than what they can find on those sites.
0: I love it. Guys, functional medicine will change your life if you let it. And speaking of things that will change your (laughs) life, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care, peace.